Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, September 13th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor and an academician, gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is September 18th. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and today, for our friend Charles Willard, who's in Minnesota, that's 5.30 a.m., and our little team is working to be faithful to Lectionary Year C. That puts us in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday, and we hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the lead-off person shares some formative questions, usually three questions, and then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining in today's discussion. Charles Willard. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. And I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. And our lead-off person is Sarah Mickelson. She's going to read the scripture and guide us through a very interesting and challenging passage. Hello, Sarah. What's the good news? Good morning, everybody. I will say that this was a stumper, so I hope that you get something from this conversation. We are still digging. Um, We're at Luke chapter 16. We've come through chapter 15, which are the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son, or the extravagant father. We now find ourselves in a continuing conversation with the same group of people, uh, Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to start at the top of the chapter. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me, accounting of, give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. And I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as a manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, 100 jugs of olive oil. And he said, well, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. And then he asked another, how much do you owe? And he replied, 100 containers of wheat. And he said, take your bill and make it 80. And he said, and then, and his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into, into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate one and love another, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That ends our scripture. I really, really, really feel for anybody preaching on this this week. This is, this is going to be a rough one. Um, you can talk about money 
which is never a popular conversation. Or you can talk about dishonesty. Or you can talk about um, using tactics um, of modern day um, wealth building um, in a way to uh, contrast how religion works or how faith works. I'm not sure any of that will work for me. So my questions this week were, um, I tried to be as hard-nosed as I could to get to what my disruptions with this particular passage were. And my question number one is, what are we being called to see and do like the dishonest manager? Question number two, I'm going to go ahead and read all three of them because this is probably going to make some people squirm. I'm really struggling with this parable. It's my question two. I thought about who models forgiveness in this story, and that led me to see Jesus in the role of the dishonest manager. And if, if we see Jesus as the dishonest manager, how does that impact how we read and live into this lesson in this parable? My third question, how are we like the unjust manager? In what ways might we further God's kingdom with the same methods we guard and fight to preserve our survival, wealth, position, and influence? So back to question one. Hopefully this will tease out into something really good and useful. What are we being called to see and do like the dishonest manager? Billy, what do you got for us today? You would start with me, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, and as I'm looking at my notes and you're re- reading the three questions, um, this morning as I was going over again before I signed in, it struck me that all of what I say sort of bleeds over into all three questions. So even my way of responding sort of reflects the perplexity of this story. Um, uh, it's interesting to me, this story and, and others, but we're dealing with this one, is unique to Luke. So my assumption is there was some reason that Luke chose to tell this story, but none of the other gospel writers did. Now, I don't know for sure what his purpose was, but it says to me, Sarah, along with the perplexity, Luke is signaling to us that he thought this interchange, this parable from Jesus, had a particularly important purpose. So that that encourages me to keep digging, though I am perplexed. It does remind me in Matthew 10 where Jesus is sending the 12 out, he tells them to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Now, in my personal faith journey and ministry, uh, that was a challenge because going to school, college and graduate school in the 60s and getting caught up in the idealism as well as the protest, um, I, nobody ever taught me to think this, but I thought, you know, if we're really kind to people, they will be kind back. If we are honest with people, you you get where I'm going. And that naivete ran into a brick wall at times. So I, I like that imagery. 
having grown up out in the country, one of the things I learned was you, you, you make your presence known because snakes, given the chance, will get away from you. They will avoid you. Uh, it's when you surprise them that they can be hurtful. And so that, that wisdom that serpents have and yet the um, assumed harmlessness of doves um, the one of the resources I look at is entitled the Archaeological Study Bible. There's another uh, the the social um, that's not the word they use, but looks at the the cultural study Bible. And as those titles imply, they try to uh, dig into the wisdom knowledge of archaeology and culture. And one of the comments in the Mark archaeological study bible about this was that this manager was shrewd enough to use the means at his disposal to plan for his future well-being and jesus commends that he says for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with our own generation than are the children alike the key phrase there for me sarah is means at his disposal use what's available um, I will later say something else about the other side of the story for this manager, but uh, looking at what was possible for him to do uh, is Jesus commends that. And I've, I've mentioned this on some of our other broadcasts over the years working in Presbytery, there are times churches have been too trusting you look at the frequency of fraud in churches that are too trusting. They let one person deposit the money and sign the check. And there have been some glaring and painful and embarrassing examples uh, in the time I've been a minister. So uh, the, the Greek word for shrewd is phronomos. As far as I know, there's no equivalent in English. And according to my resource, that verb can mean sensible, thoughtful, prudent, wise. And I stress that because by connotation, I, I really would rather not be called shrewd. For me, it has a bit of a negative connotation. But according to the Greek dictionary, it was positive, sensible, thoughtful, prudent, wise. Uh, I'll stop there because I'm still confused. Uh, I'm making notes. Um, and uh, Brian Stoffergen in his cross marks references that definition as well. So I, I thought if you haven't dug into that, you might want to know that. Um, Thank you. Uh, Don, what do you think about this? What, what are we being called to see and do like the dishonest manager? I think the temptation is to cut to the chase for me, you know, in a parable, what's it about? What's, it's, you know, what's, if it's about one thing or not. And I think what makes this especially great literature is this static or this lightning storm, this moral lightning storm that it creates. And that's intentional, I think, 2,000 years down the road, that lightning storm's going on in my head. I think that's great literature. And I think there's a great Christology in this, but it just takes so much work. But I think Jesus wants us to do the work and to, to go there. I want to look away. But if I 
if I get away from cutting the, to the chase and go through the journey that Jesus intends, I am learning. And, and for listeners, I just want to say on a personal level, I, I think that journey matters, even if you don't get there, even if there's not that moment where you're like, oh, I know what this parable is. I think the journey matters here. Uh, and I think it matters because if, if I'm patient with it, I can remember as a boy looking for a face at the fair, someone that worked at the carnival, and he knew my parents, and I always knew to look for him as a little boy because he's going to let us into whatever ride he is managing that night. And I can see his face now. What is that? By the way, were we breaking the law? Was that unethical of us? It was of, it was of him. But he would wave us in. Come on. I would look for him. I knew I would get a free ride. I knew my parents would get a free ride. Free ride. What an American thing to say. Right. I remember him. I remember a friend of mine when I was in adolescence, and we built our friendship because I remember I there was a theater near my house, and I, my parents would let me go. I had some time, maybe afternoon, night, and if he was at the door, he'd go, come on, come on. I would go in. And he used the theater company's money, squandered it, and I, I knew, and I walked in. I've got to put myself in the point of doing something that is unethical as I go in. I used to wait tables, put myself through college. I remember bringing out the folks, that salad, that dessert, on my own initiative, and I used other people's money. And they remembered me, selfishly. They would ask for me that time, right? So I think to put ourselves into this is important. Uh, and I'm not going to take this to a world of moral equivalencies. I think it's meant to challenge the temptation for moral equivalencies. But I think we have to get in it. But I remember these things, right? I remember faces and names. So I think for this first question, just a quick list, people uh, may welcome me into their homes. This is from the, from the passage. And I want to add, he's thinking, this person, people may welcome me into their homes. And I'm going I'm to add to that scripture, people may make a decision to remember me. I may have an imprint on them so that they welcome me into the intimacy of their homes. This is what we're all about. This is human beings. So for just the first bite here with this first question, uh, he knows the needs of home and hearts and the power of home and hearts. He knows the power of how imprints can be made with human beings. He knows that human beings are more important than actually power and armies and war and hoarding money. He knows that is over there. He knows that future acts with human beings, if he invests now, will last. It is in their hearts. He knows that he can do that as a matter of practice. Again, now, I'm not making a moral equivalency. I'm just giving you what Jesus gives us here. Practice, practice, practice. What he does is sustain. And it's not a pittance. It's real value. I would say it's probably 20%, half price, whatever it is. It's liberation impact, right? He knows that too. Not a pittance, not a cherry on top. Big, changes lives, changes business. That's where the memory is fixed. Something big is happening here. He size up the world and its people, and he knows it's dependent on memory. He knows that decisions and debt forgiveness and actions of others, ethical or not, leaves an imprint on people. I would say the Underground Railroad in America during the Civil War and before is illegal. Against the law. So, you know, we have to dive into the equivalencies. 
to understand what real liberation might look like. And it's just a shadow. It's just a shade. It's just an echo of what the real tabernacles look like out in the future. So that's my starting point, just to come on, let's go on this journey. It's hard and it's difficult, and we have to be a part of it and confront ourselves. Let's go. Let's go give it a try. Okay, Sarah, that's what I got. Charles, what are your thoughts? I'm here marveling at the way that the, the, I'll say the three of you, I do it in a different way, I think, but the three of you uh, grasp these stories and remake them and reshape them and reconfigure them. Um, it's an amazing, it's an amazing work. Um, and I'm, I'm simply, I'm simply glad to be a part of it. I mean, I've, I've, one of the things that I did do uh, because of the complexity of uh, of, the, of the of the piece that we have and the lack of uh, other writers to balance or shade or re- reorient how this is going to work out, it it provides you know your perspective and your observations and your conclusions are really quite quite remarkable uh, and I I wonder if we actually ever get a chance to think about how how striking and how uh, life-giving what we're doing more of what you're doing what y'all are doing uh, is is enabling this to happen it's just um, it's, a, it's, it's quite a quite a remarkable thing Later on in the conversation, uh, I want to share a piece of work that I looked at because it was I was struck by this parable or this story, this this collection of of observations and encounters and revelations and commands and observations. Um, it's it's. It is unique, and and I I'm puzzled like y'all as to where where Luke went with this, and I have to I think we have to keep remembering that it is this is this is Luke's take on an experience that happened years and years and I'm talking about decades of development before it got to where it is now. So it's not as though Luke is taking notes and then you know then typing them up and sending them out right after it happened. So it's, it's that it, it lacks that that closeness and that 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 integrity to it. Um, one of the things that I and, and so I went back and looked at the I, I do keep the the uh, stories and I, I keep I keep the articles that I find and have used in the past. I, I keep those and go back and look at them from time to time. And of course, in a complex story like this, uh, there was a, a, a much larger collection of material because of the of the complexity that, that that everybody shared in the process of trying to discern what Luke was talking about. There was one writer, and I'll come to this uh, at, at later on in the conversation. There was one writer that took a completely different view, uh, and that was a, in large part because. He was from another part of the world, 
and his take on what was, you know, what we find puzzling and and doesn't make sense and seems wrong, it works out quite directly, and and so I'll come to this later on in the conversation. So I thought about this in the terms of a baker's dozen, where you end up throwing the extra donut in or the extra cookie in um, as a as a gift from the owner slash manager to the purchaser in an effort to encourage to to culture or um, to foster their business moving forward, someone's business moving forward. I thought about the lanyap. Where I'm from, at the end of a meal, the server usually brings you a sampling of a dessert, like one bite, two bites, a lanyap, if you will, a little something extra to encourage your patronage, to encourage you to return to their business and and come back for another meal. Um, I thought that was a lovely custom, a little something extra. It's the flowers in the hotel room or the bed and breakfast that are waiting for you in the bedroom that you've 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 acquired for the evening. Um, at where I grew up, it's important that <clears throat> there was something extra to differentiate yourself from the competitor or from the other choices. You know, I'm, I'm listening in my head to the the litany that they say on the airlines. We know that when you were choosing to fly, you could have flown with anyone, and you flew with us, so we want to say thank you. So it's that, what is that nuance, that little extra something? Is that a part of this story? Maybe. So here are my thoughtful questions that go with this question. Um, Is the unjust manager making things just just by forgiving the debt owed to his master? Was a portion of the debt unjust and this particular manager was just making it right? Is he forgiving the unlawful, according to Hebrew laws, interest, or is his master just overcharging those with whom he does business on a regular basis? How do we practice negotiate economic relationships? And I think this is really the crux of the story, and it gets to the heart of our problem. We admire on one hand and almost deify those who are savvy and clever with money. And yet, on the other hand, we judge harshly those who cheat the system for personal gain. I'm not sure there's a difference between those two. And it's difficult from the outside looking in to ascertain if it's just or unjust wealth being gained. So I'm struggling with that. Why is it okay to bear witness rather than to object to the pursuit of mammon by others when it's to the detriment of the, the whole system, the world system, or the, the environment, or the citizens of the third world, or, their, or your own children? Do we overlook or become blind to corruption when it improves the financial stability of our own personal future? This is when you go, the bank accidentally made a deposit into my account of $1,000. Do I call them and tell them that, or do I keep the $1,000? They're going to figure it out on their own. They're going to know when they audit, right? 
or do I make the phone call? Good question. Um, I found a wallet full of money on the ground, and I, I decided that I would try to find the owner and not do anything with the, the wallet and the things inside the wallet. I just want to make sure that the wallet found its owner again. And then the owner gives me money back for thanking me for finding the wallet. There's another good example. So um, the other point that I think is, is of value here, and uh, Robert C. Tannenhill wrote many commentaries on the New Testament, particular writings on the book of Luke, offered up this. There is humor in this story that should not be missed. The rogue builds his future by doing what he was accused of doing in the first place. He is wasting his master's profits, but he's also putting his master in a position of accepting the reduced amounts or losing face with his debtors. So he forces his master to do the right thing in a dishonest way. And I don't know about you, but that's clever. And I, I liked it. So here's question number two, again. In struggling with this parable, I thought about who models forgiveness in this story. And that led me to see or imagine Jesus in the role of the dishonest manager. And if we see Jesus as the dishonest manager, how does that impact how we read and live into the lesson of this parable? So, Don, what do you think? Is this too much of a reach? Well, I love lectionary for this reason. We come back to these passages every three years so that we can <clears> challenge you. And, I, you know, in the first answer, I was like, come on in. Let's try it. Don't be afraid. Jesus wants us to think about this. And it does. This sets a lightning storm off in my head. And, and so you sent this over. And I wrote down in my notes at 3.30 yesterday. I went from saying, no, I'm not going to answer your question, to yes. I mean, it's like, you know, we dare each other. And I think that's what we can do in the classes. If you're, if you're a moderator, you're, you're preparing for a class to challenge each other. It takes time. Sometimes you have to do the third cycle before you can get there. It's taken time for me. But here we are. So I say, okay, I'll play because I think we're supposed to. I'll play. I'll do that. Uh, and first, nothing, nothing in this passage says there's anything in, wrong with what uh, the, the person who owns the wealth uh, is doing here. I'm not sure. We can imagine that it is, and I think that's part of the static that this Jesus is trying to set off, that you know, it, it puts us into a world of moral equivalencies. But I'll just jump to Jesus as dishonest manager. Not Jesus as manager. Sarah intentionally said Jesus as dishonest manager. So I'll go, okay, I'll try. And I'll just throw out language here that I think links to the Christology of our work. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? Sarah is challenging us to say Christ is the dishonest manager. The manager has no earthly cultural standing to, to use other people's money. He does not necessarily have agency to do it, but he does it, and it's binding. We're trying to pull out words out of the New Testament. What he does is binding. He does not have full agency from the person who owns the wealth 
but he gets it from something. So as the dishonest manager Christ has authority to do something, and it is binding, but it is otherworldly. It is something that is not normal, is not within our ethical systems. He, therefore, is a usurper of the systems, Christ as dishonest manager. And when he does it, going back to memory, it is remembered because it is a startling moment and is not a pittance. It is a liberation. It changes the way the people who benefit from this are thinking and behaving. I cannot imagine what their lives are like, but it's big. And I think the point is, it's big. And it is binding. Forgiveness of debts. So, is it dishonest? Yeah, if you're looking at the cultural norms, this sets off a lightning storm in my head. I'm not comfortable with it. People weren't comfortable with the Christ. Is it faithful to the cultural and the systems and the person that owns the wealth on earth? No, it's dishonest. He's a thief. I'm pulling words out of the New Testament. Thief has come. Have we heard that Christ is a thief? Have we heard the coming of the kingdom as being like a thief? Is he the king on earth? Is he a manager? No, but he's a king. He's a servant king. Doesn't work. The behaviors that he is exhibiting through much of his ministry is not okay. Matter of fact, it sets off such a lightning storm. He is showing up in the places and teaching in ways that are perfectly acceptable, and then he turns around and eats with tax collectors. Dishonest. He's dishonest. You act like one of us, and in the Gospels we know his, his own community gets so frustrated with him. He is so dishonest they want to throw him off a cliff. So I think, uh, I think this is a challenge to me that I might want to wedge Jesus' ministry and the Christology that I have in my head into something that's acceptable, and this is way out of bounds. It is way, way out of bounds. I may say it's liberating, but I don't know exactly what that means. So that's that's what I'm getting out of this. So I, I took it, and I played, Sarah. I hope that helped. I didn't want to, but I did. Thank you. You know, I have to confess that it gave me an opportunity to open the story up a little bit just the idea of it. Um, and, and I thought, how much of this particular story is like what Jesus did? If everything, according to Psalms, belongs to God, our environment, our clothing, our housing, our wealth, our companies, our enterprise, our ingenuity, our imagination, if everything comes from God, and Jesus comes down and forgives the debts, forgives the things we have earned by our behavior and our dishonesty and our, um, what's the right word, uh, our simply being disagreeable. Everything that we've earned, that we should be entitled to, all the punishment has been forgiven. Isn't that kind of what Jesus did? Isn't the dishonest manager kind of what Jesus did? I kind of went, boy, that's a big idea for me. So I'm going to ask this question. What part of the good news are you endeared to? 
part redeems you. Puzzling through this, that at the same time we want to withhold the same part that we're endeared to, that shows mercy to us, we from those we feel, we feel, have not earned it. It's okay for my debt to be forgiven, but not yours, because you're worse than me. So when it becomes just and it becomes equal, I'm suddenly uncomfortable. Why are you letting my brother have your coat and your ring and you're welcoming him back into the family and slaughtering this small lamb for his feast dinner? And I have been with you all this time and you have treated me like a slave. And the father says, can you not be happy that your brother is home? That he's back? No, because I want to be self-righteous. <laughs> so I think about those bits and pieces and I, it really makes my heart work hard to see the good that this particular dishonest manager did. Charles, what do you got? I'm a little concerned that we we hop around in this text um, in a way that I don't think it's really appropriate for the text. Uh, and I think that one of the one of the freedoms that this group has is the ability to make those kinds of leaps uh, without worrying too much about, uh, or at least not worrying a lot about, you know, the, the, the way in which that's connected to the rest of the story that we that we have here in front of us. I don't have a solution to the problem. I just, I just, uh, I'm, I'm a little concerned about how far out on the limb we go and just because we can do it. Thank you. So for my third question, and Don, you tapped a little bit into this, how are we like the unjust manager? In what ways might we further God's kingdom with the same methods that the manager shows as we guard and fight to preserve for, you know, how do we, how do we leverage those things that we learned to guard and fight um, to preserve our survival, our wealth, our position, and our influence? Um, sure. Like, go right ahead. Uh, uh, did Bill get to answer the prior question? Oh, Bill, did you get to answer? Oh, Bill, jump in. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, but I, I will be brief because I see the time. Uh, this is truly a perplexing story, and we are as confused as the early disciples. To your question, uh, is, is Jesus like the dishonest manager? Taking the story literally, uh, there's same but different. Jesus does pay our debt, uh, as this dishonest manager did, but Jesus paid it all. And the dishonest manager only arranged for, if you want to use the word forgiveness, for a partial uh, forgiveness. Uh, certainly, Jesus was shrewd and um, took his own 
counsel that I've mentioned earlier about being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Uh, I will say, of course, I have a kind of innate dislike for thinking of Jesus as the dishonest manager, but I appreciate your pressing the question, Sarah, and I'll, I'll stop there. All right, question number three. How are we like the unjust manager? How might we leverage our penchant for guarding and fighting our own survival, wealth, position, and influence? How might we leverage that for the kingdom of God? Don? Very challenging. Uh, first, I think in the literature, can we think, can we, can, can we catch up with it? At least, at least, he is thinking about the power of family, home, hearth, human relationships, memory, imprint, all the things we've been talking about. So I think the story is asking me to catch up with him. Am I at least in that place so I can understand these things? I think that's part of it. Um, can I understand the transformative power that we have, whether it's right or wrong? Let's not get into the moral equivalency. Do I understand the transformative power that I might have and the freedom that I have in understanding the grace of God? The freedom, freedom. Uh, my pastor at the church I attend talked about Galatians this week, and so it woke me up in terms of the freedoms that we have and the responsibility to put things aside and to make decisive choices about how we serve each other. Uh, it's interesting that the pathway is the people and the home and the heart. And so do we understand the, the manager? I think, I think I do, and I think we have to work hard to do that. I think uh, for what we can do in terms of acting as the manager, to understand that God the conclusion is that God, for me, God doesn't work alongside our systems at all. It's, it's, it's too much of a change. Uh, even our ethical systems are not good enough, and there's a promise in this that we have responsibility to each other. We can understand it, but it's just a shadow of what, what is to come. Uh, and it, for this, I, I am comfortable looking at it as a, a story that talks about the storm it sets off in my head temptation to make moral equivalencies, that's the point, the temptation to make this all right, and it's not okay. And then, Sarah, you talked about, you know, dollars, God versus versus wealth. Uh, look, in Luke, uh, I guess it's in, in, in chapter 20, yeah, and in that story is there too. Jesus is asking, they're trying to trick Jesus, and he has a coin in his hand. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. What do we leave? What, what is God? What is, what is read alongside in the lectionary with that passage? To establish that Jesus is telling a joke that I think is connected to this, which is we read the creation story. That out of chaos created, all things are God. So you know, what, is, what belongs to God, what's not? What do we get to parse and what do we get to not? And the answer here is almost impossible to sort through on this earth, it's, it's creation of God. And Sarah, you made that point as well. That's my time. Charles, what do you think? I want to, I want to share one of the articles that I read. Um, I, I found when I went to look at my collection of narratives on this material to, it, it was a lot. And as I read through all of the articles by all of the smart, clever, learned, um, high prestige scholars, uh, there was a there was a sameness about it which struck me as is worrisome. 
Uh, I got to one article, though, that was written by a man who was, let's see if I can get this now so I get it right. He was at the Catholic Institute of West Africa, Nigeria. Uh, And he goes on to point out, he says, and I'll, I'll just quote this so that I get it right. As I pointed out at the beginning of my interpretation of the parable of the shrewd manager is offered not as the meaning of the parable, but as one of many possible valid interpretations. The background which informed the interpretation is that of rural West African peasant farmers, especially their experience in the expo- of exploitation by the middleman agricultural traders. This reading identifies with the peasant farmers in the story, uh, and views the situation described in the parable from their perspective. Consequently, the parable is seen as a critique of the exploited economic system of the society for the time and, and for today. It challenges Christians today to be the catalyst for bringing about a new order of justice in the world. This, parable, this, this perspective of reading has led to the conclusion that the rich man in the story is not the benevolent grand person that he is often thought to be, but an exploiter. The reading has also concluded that the manager of the state is not the villain he is often thought to be, but the hero of the story for having acted on behalf of the exploited peasant farmers. This approach has brought to life the image of peasant farmers in the story, an image not generally evident when other exegetical approaches are used. So I thought it was it was worthwhile hearing how the same text and the same collection of observations and conclusions and actions and thoughts and responses uh, in a different context produce a different result. Thank you. Um, Bill, what are your thoughts? You're asking how are we like the unjust manager and how might we employ some of that uh, again, the uh, call to be shrewd. Uh, Jesus was shrewd in his storytelling. He often turned the question back on the questioner. Uh, he left it open-ended, such as the parable of the so-called prodigal son. At the end, the elder brother is left standing outside the party. We don't know if he went in or didn't. So it it causes me to ask how and when am I the elder judgmental brother? Um, I, I would say this. I think there's a kind of counterbalance in this. The first part of the story is the, the story. And then Jesus, beginning in verse 10, goes on to comment about being faithful in little and faithful in much. And But it ends with you cannot serve God and won't. So I think we we need to look at this as a whole. And in one sense, Jesus is, com- I think, commending certain tactics that the person. But I don't. I think in the end, Jesus is not endorsing the morals. I think you, Don, your point, it's not a moral equivalency. So I I still am puzzled by it. But I I think the scales are balanced. Yeah. Be shrewd, be wise, use what is at hand, uh, be creative, innovative, courageous, but do so in a way that is not um, 
bound to wealth. And I understand wealth in a broad way. It can be money, influence, position, number of people you control, uh, whatever that becomes more important uh, than God. That's what I have, Sarah. Thank you. So just a retouch. In this story, the audience includes taxpayers and people who use money for position, wealth, power, influence. So how do we strive to forgive unjust debts that are owed by some to others? Do we chafe at the idea of debt forgiveness? Only until we find out that the debt was unjust. Maybe it was something like the housing crisis where people were promised something and that their interest rates would never go up and suddenly their interest rates tripled and there was a usury cost and people were put upside down in their mortgages because of unjust behavior by the part of the loan originator. Money does compete with God for allegiance in our country and in our own hearts. Um, and and I, I feel bad about that. I often am challenged by that. It invites us to justify behaviors that fall outside the purposes of God. And I think, how do we guard against losing ourselves in that? How might we use our bounty and our profits to benefit those who cannot pay us? Make an introduction to somebody. Never meet somebody really valuable. And you make that introduction. And that's a way of, of, of gaming the system to help that one person meet the right person at the right time. And sometimes people are connective tissues that help with that. Maybe that's the way that we do it. Maybe it's the funder that needs to put some money into a system that finds the idea person who has that grand idea that needs to be brought to the market. Maybe that's what we do. We connect the wealth to the idea. Maybe we do the right thing and we, we, we are the model that other people see. And, and they go, well, that's the right way to do that because that's the most efficient way to, to revenue generate on this particular job site. I don't know. That's the hardest part about this passage is the whole, the whole thing just says, I don't know. Welcome to the conversation. Get a shovel, dig deep. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're out of time. And to honor the lectionary calendar, we'll be back here in three years on this one. And as hard as it is, you know, in terms of my field of vision, I'll carry this one in terms of my awareness on a daily basis more than the others. Thanks, thanks to having a lead person who dares to ask tough questions. And so I, I just offering that to everyone that's moderating a class or facilitating a group to ask the questions, knowing that we'll come back to it again and again and again. Palmasia Presbyterian Church in Tampa, Florida, makes this podcast possible. They're at 3501 West San Jose Street. That is in Tampa. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A. C-E-I-A.org. We commend that site to you. Great sermons. 
discussions, differences of opinion, scripture reading, prayers, outstanding music, and much more. So check that out. And you're always welcome. And we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.